Welcome to another episode of the Gay Archive Show, where we explore gay history one bar at a time. I'm your host, Art Smith, and our very special guest today is the owner of the Pulse Nightclub in Orlando, Barbara Poma. So welcome to the show, Barbara. Thank you for having me today. You're quite welcome. Um, being that I live in Tampa, Florida, I've been very familiar with Pulse since I first first came in on the scene here. But um, can you kind of give us a little bit of background of what your involvement in the LGBT community was prior to opening Pulse? Prior to opening Pulse, my involvement was really personal. It was, um, you know, I volunteered here locally um, with organizations like Hope and Health and Centaur, um, mostly because my connection to the community came from growing up with my brother who happened to be gay, um, who was also my first best friend in life, but we lost during the AIDS epidemic. So that's um, how I became connected to the community, introduced, um, you know, born in as an ally and, and raised in this community. Um, and so that's that's how I stayed, got connected and stayed connected. And when, when did Paul's first open? Paul's opened in July of 2004. Okay. Um, what inspired you to open that bar? It was really um, our best friend's idea. Um, Ron Legler had come to my husband and I with a great idea that he's always wanted to open a gay bar here in Orlando. Um, and so he kind of was pitching it to my husband, who wasn't so sure about the concept, but um, we ultimately decided to, to do it. And it was a way for me to reconnect to the community I'd lost because when I lost my brother, I kind of lost my connection there. And so this was just a way for me to reconnect. And it was, um, it was really Ron's idea. And why did you feel that Orlando at that time needed another gay bar? You know, Ronnie and I were pretty specific that we wanted to build this beautiful, clean space for this LGBTQ community here and all over the country to come to, that they would be really proud to bring their mothers. Because most gay bars are not those kinds of establishments. And the ones I grew up in were not. The ones that we had in Orlando weren't those type of bars. And we just wanted to give the community something it didn't already have. So you wanted something that was kind of fresh and wholesome and welcoming. Yes, exactly. Who did you anticipate initially when you opened the bar would be the clientele for Pulse? You know, we knew it would vary. Um, it was, I think we just expected all. I think we built it in a way that it wasn't just a place for just boys or just girls. There was a place for everyone to come every single night of the week. And it evolved over time, um, mostly into just changing it based on the music format versus um, the clientele. So it would just became, it just kind of evolved over time, but it was meant to be a space for everyone, everyone, every single day of the week. And we did that by staffing it, you know, having girls who worked at Pulse behind the bar and on top of the bar with the go-go dancers. And if you ever came, you saw that. And they were people of all different shapes, size, colors, and genders. Um, all were welcome at Pulse. Yeah, that's an important factor that I think is often overlooked. Um, over the decades that I've been going to gay bars, you know, a lot of them were by hook or by crook, um, you know, all male gay bars with a predominantly white crowd or, you know, focus more on black lesbians or whatever. They seem to have a very definite uh, focal group, but Part of the reason I think for that is because of who you staff it with. Right. But if 
somebody is um, is a transgender color a person of color and they walk into a bar that all has uh, beefy you know male stripper types behind the bar they're not going to feel like that's their space and exactly. you you kind of fix that problem by having all kinds of people working in the bar as well. Yes, it was really important to us from the very beginning that everyone was represented and everyone was welcome every day. Um, and the staff was really um, on that. I mean, they wanted to make sure that, you know, we weren't hiring guys who just wanted to have their shirts off, um, but we were also hiring, you know, just everyday regular people who identified um, as gay or trans or non-binary and just allowed everyone to be welcome there. Yeah. For people who have never been there and only know of Pulse through news stories and what have you, how big was Pulse? About 4,000 square feet. It wasn't a very large place. It was divided into three rooms and a patio. Um, so you had a room for the dancers. You had a room to dance in and a, and a lounge and then a patio. Okay. And I know because of your background prior to opening the bar, as well as my experiences with the bar while it was open, um, you hosted a lot of events there in support of the community, in support of nonprofit organizations and, you know, um, human rights organizations and things like that. What what type of events did you did you host there to support the community? You know, what anybody asked us to do, we did. I mean, so, you know, it could be a drag performer who was raising money to go to a pageant. It could be a local nonprofit, whether they're LGBTQ plus or not. Um, sometimes there's breast cancer awareness. So come to us and say, hey, can we, you know, can you host it here? And we would. And so um, we just always try to serve the community. It was really important to our, our management team and our staff that we did that. And so it's just something that we grew to do over the time we were open. And it was a great way to give back to our community. Now, a lot of bar owners uh, in the gay community are not so much involved with the actual operations of their bars. They're not necessarily in there on a regular basis. Uh, they're not necessarily known to the clientele who go there. But I get the impression from what I know about Pulse that you were more involved. What was your day-to-day -day operation with the bar? What did you do with Pulse? Well, initially, um, for the many years, Ron was always the evening guy. I was home raising babies, so Ronnie would be there at the night um, time and, and, and being with the community. Um, I was more of your operations person during the day, um, managed our staff and management meetings and hiring of management in certain certain you know positions, bartenders during the day, and handled all of the kind of day work. Um, as that evolved over time, I mean, it doesn't mean I never went there at night. It just I was I was there at night, but not as often, um, mostly for special events and special occasions and special fundraisers. As my kids got older, I was more freed up to go there uh, more often, um, but it was just a time in my life where I had small children initially. I, I mean, 2004 when we opened, my son was only three years old. So um, there was small kids that played for there, but I was very actively involved with my team. Now the, the bar itself had a pretty long run and I'm sure it would have been much longer had it not been for you know, the events of 2016. How did you see the bar evolve mm -hmm. over a period of time from when it first opened in 2004 until the 2010s? How did you see that bar change? Um, I think it changed with the times. I mean, when Propulse first opened, you know, you didn't come there unless you were wearing dress shoes and, you know, dressed from the night people would drive up from Miami wearing a fur to come there on a Saturday night. So I think over time, it just, it evolved with the community in different ways, um, depending on, you know, the 
the group that were in there that evening. It just, it just, I think changed with time and we kind of changed the decor as well. If you remember when we opened, it was, we had the white room, the ultra lounge, which everyone loved. But after so many years, I was like, you know, we've got to keep it fresh. And so then we had changed that and we just kind of changed it aesthetically as well. Yeah. It always felt fresh when I went in there. I remember, uh, you know, bartenders and patrons all being friendly, of course, being in central Florida, um, the weather is really nice most of the year, so you can use the outdoor patio, uh, which is not the case if you had a bar, say, in Buffalo, New York, where, you know, you have one week that you can go outside. Um, you know, as the bar evolved and you moved into the 2010s, did you see a change in the clientele of the bar or notice that it was becoming more specifically one group than another, or did it remain as mixed as it was in the beginning? It always remained as mixed, but we, you know, we changed music formats per night. On Wednesdays, you know, it was college night, and you'd find mostly house music happening in there. Um, but on Fridays, we had a um, what we call Platinum Fridays, was a hip hop night. But that crowd again wasn't exclusively, you know, African American and Black, which people think it would be. It was a very mixed crowd, um, and what that meant was just that that music format played on the main dance floor. So even if hip hop was playing on the main dance floor, you'd find Latin music in the patio and house music maybe in the dancer room. And on Saturdays, well, it was only two years that we had Latin night on Saturday, which is when the shooting happened. Um, and that changed um, the community drastically because now the Latin community, uh, which is a high demographic here in Orlando, had some place to go on a weekend night. We were the first um, gay bar to, to do that, to give this community um, a Latin night on a Saturday. So it changed the demographics of people per se, mostly Latin music on Saturday night on the main dance floor, but it was still, a very diverse crowd. Yeah, I live um, in Tampa, just on the edge of Ybor City. So I'm familiar with how strong that um, that Latin crowd is in Central and South Florida. And um, you're right. It, most of the bars, when they try to reach out to any of the, what I would call like splinter groups of the gay community, uh, whether it's the trans uh, people or the Latin people, or even lesbians, they tend to do the special night in midweek when there's no nobody going out anyway. So yeah. they figure they're going to you know, take that opportunity. But you took probably the busiest night of the week and on Saturday and turned it into a Latin night at that bar. And of course, the Latin community came out in droves. Yes. So what would you say distinguished Pulse from the other gay bars in Central Florida? What made it special? I, I think what made it special is that everyone was welcome every day of the week. I think that, you know, that you would be in there as a gay man sitting next to a trans woman grabbing a drink or dancing on the dance floor with a lesbian that you probably did not know before. Because, I mean, everywhere I have been, even still today as I travel, they're like, oh, well, that's a lesbian bar. I'm like, what does that mean? You can't go there, you know? They're like, well, you, it's just so segregated in the community. So I think that what made Pulse different is that it was a place for everyone every night of the week. I think everyone felt welcome there every night of the week. Um, and it was mostly about music, more about people, and served our community well. And it was a place people did bring their families. And you probably didn't realize it at the time, but that was kind of a forward-thinking decision because as we move now post-pandemic, um, we're seeing a lot of the newer bars that are opening are proclaiming themselves to be queer bars or, you know, mm -hmm. bars for everyone. And whether they're open by, you know, men, women, um, 
lesbians, gays, whatever, whoever's opening the bar, they're trying to appeal to a broad spectrum of the population. And you had that idea in place, you know, almost 20 years ago. Almost, yeah. That is incredible. So what are some of your favorite personal memories <laughs> from Pulse? Oh, I have many, but I think the top three would be, first we'll start with our Tuesday night crowd, um, Axel Andrews, who's a local talent here, who was you know, up and coming back then, but is well-established now as a performer around the country. He's um, He and another, um, I think, what's his name? Was, I think Kaya, but they started Twisted Tuesdays. And so Twisted Tuesdays was a night where people who were, it's a talent contest, like an amateur talent contest. And so they would bring people in who were just starting their craft, you know, just learning how to put on makeup and lashes or just learning how to walk in heels. And it became a place where great develop, you know, talent came out of that. Um, it was a great place for people to try things out that were new and different. Um, it just created a different space for, for that kind of art form and development. So I was, I really loved that. Um, it was to me something, and also a way to give back to the community. Uh, we used to help a second, my most, well, maybe my second, or maybe my first most favorite things, but we held something called Turnabout every year, um, which was a fundraiser for our local Hope and Help Center, which is an HIV um, nonprofit here in Orlando. But our staff, who did not do drag, would perform a drag number. Um, and sometimes it was good drag, and sometimes it was not so good drag, but they all did their very, very best every year. Um, and then our, our drag um, entertainers would come, most times not in drag, and they would uh, judge it. And then every year we'd have a winner for the turnabout. And we would donate all the money. No one on the staff made money that night. Um, generally, we tried to match it as a club. Um, all bartenders donated their tips and dancers. All the tips to the show went to Hope and Help. It was just a great fundraiser. Um, and it was just fun for everyone. And it was it was a great time to be had by all. Um, another great time. I mean, gosh, every New Year's Eve was always a blast. No matter what day it fell on, we had a good time on New Year's. But it just was development of new talent and bringing in great comedians sometimes and, and drag from around the country and the world. It, it was just exceptional for me anyway. I, I loved it. Yeah, it was a great club. It was just, uh, I don't know, it, it just felt so energetic and um, so welcoming. It was it's, a, it's unfortunate that there's so many people now who are familiar with the club who never had the chance to experience mm -hmm. it um firsthand and i'm going to try during the course of this uh this video to insert some still photos and some video clips that show people what the club was like when it was actually open and you know and operating and hopefully that'll give them a little bit different perspective on um, on pulse in general so <clears throat> with all the welcoming of every member of the of the lgbtq community in Orlando, uh, you had a broad base of customers that came in there. Mm -hmm. But how was Pulse viewed by the local bar community? I know a lot of times there's jealousy and, you know, people kind of undermine everybody else's um, operations. How did people look in the bar, gay bar community? How did they look at Pulse? I think, you know, I did know other owners and we did meet and, and confer with one another. We all had agreements not to, you know, and um, do events on the same evenings and have not, not make competing events. Uh, I think that every bar here in Orlando had its niche. I mean, you know, we had Parliament House here, which was an iconic 
bar. I mean, it, you know, there was no um, no reason to, nor was anybody going to compete with it in any way. It had its own following. Um, Southern Knights, which you know the owner, current owner today, has an incredible job developing that um, section of where Southern Knights is and, and adding two other bars around the corner. So I just think Orlando played nice with each other for the most part. The three most, you know, the three largest establishments here at the time played nice with each other. Um, try to have open lines of communication and each had its own kind of crowd. And some people who would go to Pulse on Wednesday would go to Southern on, on Friday, you right. know, so it just, it wasn't a thing. And I think, you know, because I had hip hop night on Friday and Latin on Saturday, that didn't compete with any one of anybody else's nights. So that was, um, it just was, we all played well in the sandbox with each other for the most part. Yeah. And I don't know if everybody realizes if they're not from central Florida, but Orlando has a unique distinction like, um, say, New York City or some of or Miami, maybe, uh, of having a very big transient community. People, a lot of people come in as tourists. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of conventions are held there um, because of the fact that there are two huge theme park families in Orlando. There's a lot of um, young blood and very often um, LGBTQ employees involved with either uh, Universal or Disney, and so you have a big opportunity to dip into a big pool. You're not dealing with, you know, 5,000 local residents who are going to go out to the same clubs day after day. You have a constant influx of people from all around the country and the world who are also going to be experiencing, you know, the entertainment options that, that Orlando has to offer. It's true. Orlando is the most visited city in our country. Um, and we saw repeating guests, most lot of times flight attendants or pilots, because we had seen so many people traveling in and out of here. But people traveled from all over the state to come here, even if they were coming to the parks for a day, they would come to Pulse. Gay Days is held here every year. Um, and so we had lots of lots of people coming from all over. I think Pulse, you know, most people would have said if there was a complaint, it was like, oh, Pulse is too young for me. That crowd is too young. And so, you know, I think I said every every club had their had their space. Yeah, and it's interesting that you bring up that point because I think the reason you get that comment is because of your commitment to keeping it fresh. And, you know, obviously I've been around in the gay community for over 40 years, so I'm sure I fall into that older community, but a lot of people who are older don't like change a lot. So they want the bar to look like it would have looked in 1968 or 1978 or 1988. And the fact that you're trying, you were trying to keep it fresh all the time and bring in new stuff to them was the equivalent of saying we want a young crowd, even though it has nothing to do. They don't have anything to do with each other. It's okay. just that you were trying to keep it, you know, interesting and and innovative. So, Pulse was not a um, a well known bar in the country, particularly. I mean, it was if you ask people to name the top ten bars that they knew or the you know the ten most famous gay bars they knew in the country in 2015 pulse probably would not have been on that list um it was like you said a smaller bar 4,000 square feet that appealed to a local community and had a diverse clientele but suddenly in june of 2016 pulse was front and center in national and international news mm -hmm. when did you first learn about the shooting Minutes after it started, I received a phone call from my manager who was working that evening, who escaped um, very quickly, called me immediately. So within the first six minutes, I was already notified by him. 
And and what were your first thoughts upon hearing that news from him? I didn't understand what he was saying to me because we had never had any problems at Pulse before, not even anything active violence whatsoever. So I was just like, no, I think you're wrong. I think you're talking about um, Christina Grimmie because the night prior there had been a shooting in Orlando and Christina Grimmie was murdered by a fan. And so I was out of town. And I said, no, I said, what you're hearing is about last night. And he's like, no, there's a shooter inside the club right now. And so it really took me a long time to really comprehend that because I just, it was surreal. Like that was just not, did not make any sense whatsoever to me. Yeah, I can imagine. I don't know what I would have been thinking if somebody had called me and told me that, you know, my favorite club had an active shooter in it. I would have been thinking, you know, what are you smoking? Where are you coming up with this idea? Yeah. Now, you mentioned you were out of town at the time, so you weren't even in Orlando when that happened. No, I was not. I was in Mexico. My um, my daughter had just graduated high school, so we were on a mother-daughter trip with other mothers and daughters celebrating that. And I'm guessing that cut your your trip kind of short. Um, um, I was actually due to come home that day, um, but I just made sure I got a much. I got the first flight out. I changed my flight to come back much earlier, um, obviously. But it was the same day or the next day. I can't remember. Yeah, I'm sure it's it's all a blur that weekend. Um, I remember when I first heard the news early Sunday morning, and. Um, how fast everything happened after that, uh, even here in Tampa, you know, how many local politicians and um, first responders and local citizens and uh, gay rights organizers and everybody kind of all got together spontaneously. They somehow planned events and actions that you couldn't imagine. It is a somber moment but it is also a moment that we can be together in solidarity, that we can honor those whose lives were lost by somebody who we looked at and we saw the face of hate. We saw the face of evil. We saw somebody who didn't understand what this was about, but more importantly, what we were about. So what actions did you take when you got back to Orlando and kind of got a chance to evaluate the situation uh, firsthand. What was your, what were your first actions there? I think within the first 24 hours, it was um, I was working on making doing a roll call of my staff to see who was where, who was hurt, and what their needs were. We tried to get everyone together at um, kind of another employee's house to try and just kind of be with each other. So my first inkling was to check on the staff. And then, of course, you know, there's there's no handbook um, for what to do first, second, or third. And it was just, you know, hearing um, the names and who's, who lost their friends. You know, we did lose one staff member at Pulse, and we had a couple who were injured. So it was just kind of getting your bearings to, to see what was happening here. And um, there were vigils that were popping up. There were funerals that were starting to be planned. There was a family assistance center, which our governments had set up. And I wanted, I, my, I was trying to make sure that my staff got there to see if there's any resources for them. Because if you were, half the staff worked the night, we were a staff of, of uh, 52 and 26 were working that evening. And so the 26 who were working were considered survivors. Um, the other 26 weren't considered survivors at all but they had lost their jobs and 
and um, their friends. But those who worked, you know, they didn't have their phones, they didn't have their car keys, they, you know, they got out of the building without anything. So it was just making sure they got the resources they need, that we got together, and that we started to assess the situation of what we could do, what was needed. Which um, of the local Orlando LGBTQ organizations, which ones were the first ones to come to your side and ask, you know, how can we help and what can we do for you? I don't... Um, I was in a state of shock and like in trauma and chaos and being kept very isolated. And what I do know or do recall from that time is that I know our LGBTQ plus center here opened up immediately when they heard the news and they started receiving um, our community there. I know that someone, and I'm not sure when it happened, started this one Orlando Alliance, started here in Orlando, that they started gathering communities. And I didn't find out about all that till much later. Um, I can, I, I don't know what my first recollection of knowing those things were, but I think things were popping up all over. Um, but I do know that our local bars, like our place called the Hammered Lamb here in Southern Knights, they held fundraisers immediately and donated all the money um, to help the staff. And so it was an amazing gift to receive from them that I I had, um, when I realized that they had no income, these were, these were people in the hospitality business. And so they had nowhere to go to work the next day. And so I had started an LLC. I incorporated something immediately. And so when people wanted to make a donation to the staff, we put it in that fund. And then every week, what I would do is meet up with the staff and issue them a check from that fund to keep them going until the money ran out. So they would keep the, paying their rent and buy food and put gas in their cars and, and just find ways to take care of them. Yeah, I was pretty uh, pretty amazed by the the speed in which some of these organizations kind of mobilized. Mm -hmm. And I know here in Tampa, uh, immediately after the news started to spread about the um, the shooting at Pulse, there was a huge vigil planned here as well. Mm -hmm. And um, I was at that vigil. We took a lot of video. I'm going to put some video up of the Tampa vigil to give people an idea of you know 80 miles away from where this you know where your club was what the outreach was so you say this is human your heartbeat versus mine i'm in chains because i'm choosing showing love for living life i shouldn't have to leave where i stand i shouldn't have to change who i am to count as a human Feel my pulse With your head on my heart You know it beats just as hard as yours Feel my pulse Feel my pulse Can't you see that I'm scarred? I'm just the same as you are So just feel my pulse No, 
heart beats just as hard as yours Feel my pulse and from my memories of that particular time, there were bars everywhere. Mm -hmm. I mean, Los Angeles, New York, in Canada, mm -hmm. in South Florida, wherever they were, there were vigils for Pulse all over the country. It was- And, and the world. And the world, yeah. We, we have pictures of people holding signs in Seoul, Korea, and in Australia, and Italy, you name it. There were, there were vigils being held everywhere. Um, there was even gentlemen arrested in Russia for trying to hold a sign up. Um, and so it was, it was not just Orlando, it was not just Florida, it wasn't just our country, it was the entire world who came together after that shooting. How did you react to this international outpouring of love and support for Pulse? Um, I, I remember it. I remember seeing the pictures and the signs. Um, I remember people telling me about it. I don't know. I can't, I don't know what I was capable of feeling then. I don't know how to explain what that level of trauma does to you, but you're just kind of glazed over and you just kind of make it through the day. Like, you know, couldn't sleep, couldn't eat. And so all you were doing was just going where people told you to go and listening to what people were saying next. And it, it really was just a time of functioning for me. I'm a high functioning compartmentalized kind of person. Um, and so Looking back, I mean, I remember when it started to set in, it was overwhelming. I remember seeing it later. My sister would be like, Don't, did you see the Opera House in Australia? Did you see the Eiffel Tower in Paris? Or the, the, there's, you know, um, a bridge in Dallas. And, and I was just like, okay, you know. And I remember it later settling in, realizing how, how big this was and how much this meant to the world. Um, and that, for some reason actually put a little bit more weight on my shoulders, knowing that we were now responsible for carrying that for the entire world. But um, I don't know if I could say any kind of feeling at the time because it was just a function mode. It was a survival moment. I can imagine. Um, but it was kind of a turning point as far as, you know, international recognition of things that happened in the gay community. It was a you know, I think marriage equality had just passed, right? Like mm -hmm. not long before that. Um, and it kind of put it on the radar. And it's amazing to me how many people, like you said, from around the country and around the world responded to an act that prior to that, I don't know that we had ever heard that kind of 
outpouring your connection to any event, uh, not even Stonewall. I mean, when Stonewall happened in the in the 60s, um, I lived in New Jersey at the time, but I don't think I was even remotely aware that Stonewall had happened until many years later. And I know from my involvement- We also weren't connected. I mean, think, oh, about, right. think about the upstairs lounge in, you know, in New Orleans in 73 and Matthew Shepard, who was murdered and beaten. So, I mean, there were so many horrific acts of violence against this community. Pulse, sadly, is the largest loss of life and the largest attack, but um, didn't have, we were connected through media, 24-hour media or global media and national media. So I think that's why the community didn't react I think if I think if Stonewall hadn't happened in, in the setting that Pulse happened, you would have seen it because I learned just two years ago that there was the same sort of uprising in Spain in a small town called Pasea Bagonia who had the same thing where bars were raided and people were beaten and, and, and bars were closed. Um, it happened a year or two years after Stonewall in New York. And I had never even heard that story. And so, you know, it was happening globally. We just didn't know it. And that's why the project's so important, really going forward. Absolutely. And there was one um, in um, in Fort Worth, Texas, there was a raid in the bar that involved, you know, some injury and a lot of media locally that nationally never got out until somebody decided to write a little documentary about it, which just like the one in New Orleans, um, you know, I remember when, when the news about Pulse came out, and it wasn't long, uh, maybe a few hours after they started reporting the story, that they said this is the largest, um, you know, act of violence in the gay uh, gay bar community ever. Mm-hmm. But having been a member of the gay community for almost forty years before that, I never had an idea what the previous largest one was, which, as you mentioned, was the upstairs lounge. But yes. nobody mm-hmm. knew because it wasn't. You know, it didn't have the social media connections and the instant exchange of information. And I can't even imagine how many millions of people heard that news within the first 12 hours. It was amazing how fast that word got out. It was. It was. So do you know, I I remember seeing um, lots and lots of nonprofit organizations and uh, GoFundMe type pages put up there do you have any idea overall how much money was raised in support of the survivors and the victims of the pulse foundation of the pulse massacre yeah i believe you know that all of those funds were consolidated into one fund i think it was called the one orlando fund and that was um distributed to our family survivors um through the through our city and, and through government but i think they raised over 33 million dollars um, one of the largest funds ever created. And so I think it was, the shooting was in June. I think it was October when that money was dispersed to the families and survivors. Um, and so that's all on, actually our city's website still has all that information up, but it was over $33 million that was raised for them. And that's exactly where all the money went. It went directly to them. Um, and that's exactly where it should have gone. That is pretty remarkable. And as you can tell from the t-shirt I'm wearing, there were also a lot of national organizations that kind of got behind the whole um, the whole thing. This is a um, a Rays T-shirt that mm-hmm. the uh, the local baseball team, the Tampa Bay Rays, put out uh, that said "We are we are Orlando" with the Rays logo and rainbow colors underneath. And of course, they did the matching hat. But so many organizations did that. There were so many sports teams and 
and national organizations that jumped right on that bandwagon and helped get that word out and, and you know, help in any way they could. It's true. Even locally, they did it here. Our soccer team was incredible. Um, and a team, fantastic. And they still are incredible supporters. But yeah, you saw it around the country, uh, people stepping up and because they realized what happened to Pulse um, happened to everyone and everyone was feeling it. So how do you feel that the Pulse massacre and the news associated with it impacted the gay community at large and the perception of the community in general by other you know, members of our community? I, mean, I think it devastated the community, the global community. Um, I also think it united us in ways that haven't hadn't been united. I think you saw people you know, holding each other up. I think you saw more allies come out and be more vocal. I think you've seen more families, mothers and fathers be more supportive um, than in the past. So I think there's tons of change that came out from it. I know that here in Orlando, um, I know we are an exceptional city. We were always open and welcome before, but now it is just like you, you rainbow flag everywhere, just saying, you know, you're welcome here. You're accepted here. You're safe here. And so I think, I think that it became more outward facing for the world to see. And I think a lot of cities have done that. I can tell you that many cities around our country still today in 2022 still honor June 12th in their cities. There's still vigils happening in different college campuses and in different cities all over the country. So how did you personally adjust after being, you know, a stay-at-home mom and kind of a daytime, you know, bookkeeper manager at your bar and then suddenly being thrust into the limelight and becoming the face of gay violence in the media? I mean, you were suddenly the superstar. You were the person to talk to about anything violence related in the gay and the gay community. Yeah, that was a moment, but I mean, I, I never, I wasn't technically a stay-at-home mom because we, my husband and I had many other businesses. And so my kids came to work with me if they weren't school-aged yet. Um, and, you know, I may have dropped them off for school, gone to work, came home, picked them up. <laughs> Always a working mom. Um, but Pulse, um, you know, after the shooting, that changed dramatically because instead of being the mom who dropped you off and picked you up every day and made your lunch, you know, I kind of became an absent mom. And I know I became this face to everyone else, but you know, I, it was it was hard and it's still hard because I still travel and, and lines still get formed. People want to tell me their story, whether they're coming out story, their pull story, um, where they were that on June 12th story. And I don't know if handling it is the right word. I think I've done the very best I can. I, um, I'm, I'm not a robot, so I have my moments. I'm not perfect. And there was a lot I had to learn because before, you know, my connection was through the HIV AIDS losses. That's something that I had lived. That was my lived experience. Pulse was my lived experience. But what I became the face of was a lot of things I had to learn about and um, a lot of, you know, being equipped to handle trauma and handle anger and loss was, was hard. So, what things were you able to accomplish in the wake of this tragedy due to your media exposure and your elevated profile? Were there things that you wanted to be able to do that became easier because you could call the mayor and have, you know, something done or you could connect with somebody on a national organization and, and accomplish more than you would have before? I don't know because I don't know what before was like for other nonprofits. Um, I started the foundation within weeks after the shooting. Um, 
was out in LA shortly thereafter, raised money that we actually gave to that one Orlando fund, and then started the work of figuring out what to do next. Like, what do, what do we do next with the Pulse nightclub? Do we reopen it? Do we close it? Do we make a memorial out of it? Um, you know, all of that took um, lots of thought and lots of research, and lots of travel. And, um, you know, that set us off on the, on the journey we are today. I think that, of course, it being a national tragedy, that when we needed something, they were there for us. But I, it's not because of me. It's not because of anything else, but the sheer fact that even our local first responders, including our mayors, both of them, um, they were affected too. This was their community. These were these people that they served. They're, they, you know, they're, they were traumatized too. And so everyone wanted to give back in a way to the project and to their community in the best ways they could. And you find that still today. Now, do you still have interaction with the survivors and families of the victims? Yeah, this project is not possible without the families or survivors. We don't, you know, no project of any kind, whether it be a memorial like what we're building or even any kind of building you want to build, your performing arts centers or your, you know, an arena, there's never going to be 100% consensus. And my my partnerships with uh, Oklahoma City National Memorial and 9-11's memorial teams told us that from the very beginning. You know, they said this will start and end with your community and you have to do what the community wants. Um, but know that you're never going to have 100% consensus. And so we don't have 100% consensus, but we have more than a majority and that makes us happy. But everything we do here at the foundation starts with them. I mean, before the media gets anything, before any decisions made, the families have already been notified and informed and, um, and asked and they participated in if they want to. We did a community survey when, the, when we first started the foundation. Um, everything to do with the project, even the interim memorial design was, um, they were part of that. They saw it before anybody else did. The design competition, they saw it before anybody else did. Uh, and so just yesterday in the light of the news of Colorado, you know, I spent my morning calling them or texting them, talking to them and to survivors and, and to family members, which are very different groups and first responders too, the nurses, the doctors, the SWAT teams, the list is endless, but yes, we are um, intricately connected and in this work together, and um, we couldn't do it without them. Now, you mentioned earlier that you started the idea of the One Pulse Foundation early. How soon after June 12th did that come into fruition, that there was some kind of uh, One Pulse Foundation forming? Immediately. I mean, we filed papers. I mean, I wasn't all that. We had the wherewithal, but people around me had the wherewithal to know that this was going to be big and that and if we wanted to do something, we needed to have a nonprofit. So I, I was, I want to say One Pulse Foundation was incorporated. I mean, it was in July. It was weeks after the shooting. Um, and because I was the owner, it was fast tracked and approved. Um, because of course we could prove that. And so that was easy for us to get started, but it wasn't sure exactly what it was going to do. Um, but knew we needed to do something. So since you brought it up, what is the current mission of the One Pulse Foundation? The mission of our foundation is to open eyes and minds and doors and ears. It is about teaching um, people about what happened on June 12th. So we want to open doors through our legacy scholarship program. We have 49 legacy scholarships, one in each of the victims' names designated by their family member. Um, because like our, our angel, Amanda Alviar, she never got to become the nurse that she wanted to become. So her mother and father designated her scholarship for nursing. So we have, we have funded three rounds of those 49 scholarships um, already. Almost a million dollars in scholarships has gone out. They're national. They're up to $10,000 a year. You don't have to be gay to, to earn one. We have a lot of allies and young, young people who have 
have been awarded those those scholarships. So that's how we're opening doors. Um, and the, the museum and the memorial project, um, that's our bricks and mortar, but that's the place where the, where the memorial is, is, is where the Pulse nightclub is, and that is your sanctuary. And that is where you come still today to pay your respects, to bear witness, to leave an item, to sit and reflect, to come to an event like our Remembrance Week, and then the, the, the museum parcel, which is our education center. Um, it is a place not of just LGBTQ plus history, but a place of change. And that's where we're opening minds, right? And we're opening doors for people to come in there and learn about what it means to be othered and belong. And so it's it's a multifaceted group. We also, the third component of the project is something we call the Orlando Health Survivors Walk. And that is a place where you are meant to take this three block journey from the Pulse nightclub to the level one trauma center. If the Orlando Health Trauma Center had not been three blocks away, the number 49 would probably have been doubled. It was an amazing miracle from above that we were able to get people there so quickly. People carried their friends there. They ran there. They threw in packs of trucks to get there. And everyone who got to that front door alive lived. And every single one of those doctor bills were forgiven. And so we're going to transform that three-block journey along Orange Avenue here in Orlando to a story of survivorship. Because people don't talk about survivorship. They don't talk about what these survivors go through every day. Um, it's not over when their bullet wounds have healed. They're forever changed. So between the legacy scholarships, three parts of this project, and our education programming through the One Pulse Academy, um, that's how we plan to um, get through this mission and accomplish it. I'm so excited that the architectural design that I've seen for the new um, museum and memorial is striking. I mean, it's a beautiful sculptural piece of architecture. And in my mind, that's an important aspect. A lot of people would say, well, why do you have to be so fancy? Why are you spending so much money on pretty when it's really all about the contents? But that's not true. If you think about the, the world famous museums and where people you know connect to, you have the Guggenheim in New York, you have the Louvre in Paris, you have all these museums, the High Museum in Atlanta that are just striking monuments mm -hmm. that testify to their purpose. They're, you know, when you look at that building, you have a special feeling in your heart just looking at it. And I think the the design of the Pulse Memorial is going to evoke the same kind of thing. If you put it in a rectangular brick box, it would be like, blah, let's go in here and look in the closet and see what Aunt Mary left in the shoebox. But, <laughs> but you've made this a statement piece. I mean, the museum itself is going to draw attention to the history behind it. That's exactly true. We held an international design competition um, through a firm that helped us launch that. And we, re we rendered 68 qualified teams from 19 different countries around the world. I mean, even architects from Iran submitted to build this thing. It was Italy, it was Korea, it was you name it. We had, um, we had designers from all over. So these teams, um, that's how it showed how important this project was. We narrowed that to six and then obviously down to one. And this team that built, I mean, had has designed this is from Paris. And you're right. I mean, I could ask all the time, why are you building that big building? Why can't you just, and I say, they deserved it, number one. It's an iconic piece of architecture. It is definitely reflective of this community. It's reflective of Pulse and they deserve it. Um, and so we wanted to give that back to Orlando um, and give it back to the world. And that's, you know, through architecture was a great way to do it. Um, and we've held fast on the criticism of that, but um, we think it's important. I'm, I'm glad to see that you understand it in that way. Oh, as well you should. And, you know, the funny thing is we just recently had a political candidate and local 
uh, businessman who passed away a couple of years ago. And he built his own personal mausoleum for himself and his wife and child that his personal mausoleum cost a million and a half dollars. Wow. So to say that a memorial for 49 people plus, you know, 60 odd victim or uh, survivors in addition, um, that impacted the entire world. To say that that should be, you know, just a a plain building with some, you know, some stuff stored in it is ridiculous. I mean, we memorialize our our dead and our and our heroes both with things that are extravagant, but that's exactly. the point. Exactly. So your experience with Pulse and your learning curve of how in the first days, weeks, and months of you know how to cope with it, how to navigate the uh, administrative struggles and you know the, the red tape through government agencies and so on, um, that was an education that you couldn't pay for. You could not possibly have gone to school for any amount of money and learned how to do all that in such a short period of time. But you've kept that information and you've moved forward with it. And I know for a fact, just from conversations with people I know in the community, that yesterday you were involved in counseling the people in Colorado after this, the next tragic you know, gay bar shooting um, to my knowledge, that's the first one of of any magnitude since polls, correct? There was, was a shooting other? in a bar in color in California. Um, but this is the the gay bar, you know, is a different thing. And I so I have reached I have reached out to the owner of the bar and um haven't got a response yet. But I'm just my email is simply like I'm here for you anytime that you need to reach out to me. And I'm I'd love to be connected out there. Um it's a very unique situation. Um, that not everyone will understand. And so my team and, and all of Orlando really is here's a resource for them. And again, I noticed um, because, of course, in the course of my research of gay bars all around the country, I've been familiar with Club Q and um, I've been following them on social media and so on. And so I've seen a lot of the information that's come out in the last 24 hours. And it seems almost like an instant replay of Pulse, not mm -hmm. on such a large scale. Of course, it was a much smaller situation. But I even think, did I not see a tribute at the American Music Awards uh, for Club Q? Which yes. I think Pulse was the one that broke that ice. Pulse was the one that got that kind of news out into all these organizations. And now it seems like, fortunately, I guess, we're seeing it again. Um, that we're getting support of organizations that are completely unrelated to the gay bar scene. Yeah, I mean, it's time. I mean, for as much rhetoric that we hear through legislation um, of the negativity and all the misinformation and disinformation being spread about the LGBTQ plus community, it is great to see that other people are using their voices to amplify the goodness of this community and the, the need for acceptance of this community and the rejection of the hate and rejection of the violence. So I, you know, I really applaud the AMAs for doing that last night and we watched it as well. And so it was, it was nice to see. Yeah. And there was an outpouring um, and vigils around the country. Mm -hmm. so there were several places that had um, vigils in honor. I've seen on Facebook um, and Instagram a number of the different uh, gay bars that I follow have changed their profile picture to the Q logo. 
um, yes. you know, just in respect and honor for, for the people at Club Cube. It's true. So what do you envision for the future of the One Pulse Foundation? I envision us um, getting this project built and opened. Um, I envision the legacy scholarships getting fully endowed so that we know they'll be here in perpetuity forever to keep the 49 legacies alive. And that our education programs become a center, a place where that we are looked to to do the research and to provide the data and to make some real change and talk about whatever the topic is today. And I think that's what's really unique about the museum education center is that it is meant to be a place that changes with time. And I'm hoping in five years from today, the conversations we're having um, in the conversations lab is a very different conversation than we're having today. And the way we're the way we're building it is that we will always evolve. And it doesn't always have to talk about just LGBTQ plus conversations, right? Because we talk about all marginalized communities because we really need to pull together um, and talk about what, what fuels this country and, and to, to right now we need to lessen the divide. So my envision us being um, at the table for all of that to happen. Well, I will make sure at the end of this video to put up the links to the One Pulse Foundation uh, website and some other information. So anybody that's watching it or any of the other bar owners that I'm connected with or anybody out there can kind of connect with you and offer their input and help support the foundation. Is there any idea, any kind of target date when the actual memorial and museum building might be um, finished and open to the public? Yeah, we have a goal that we would love to um, brown uh, great well, break ground next year um, on the memorial and the Orlando Health Survivors Walk. So those um, two pieces of the project will be phase one. Um, we have a large goal. We have a $12 million goal to raise to get there. No gift is too small and no gift is too large. So we ask people to help us get that $12 million raised so we can get that ground broken next year. And once we do that, it'll take only one year to get those both of those pieces built. Um, so it's just a matter of this community coming together. And for, I hope every gay bar out there um, will become part of this conversation and help us get that done um, because the world and the community needs it. Excellent. I will look forward to that. Being so close, I am sure I will be there in the early days of that opening. Good. So my final question to you is something that I've discussed with people in many of the interviews that I've done and sometimes get mixed reviews. But why do you think the LGBTQ plus community still needs safe spaces, despite the belief that the world is becoming more accepting? Well, saying the world is 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 more accepting is a pretty broad statement, <laughs> Um, I, I think there might be pockets of places that are more accepting, um, but I don't think the world as a whole is. Um, Saturday evening is a testament to that. And that happened in one of those safe spaces. So you had someone um, who was anti-LGBTQ plus enter into that safe space to let their feelings be known, let them display their hate for the world to see. So I just feel like I think safe spaces right now um, are necessary. I remember even when Pulse was open, people kept saying, well, the bar, gay bars are going to become obsolete. I'm like, not going to happen. Um, you may get a drag performer in a straight bar. You may have some, you know, boys, but you are, I don't know if you're ever going to have that um, complete openness in, in our lifetime. I, I hope we do in, in, in further years, but I'm not sure I see that right now. I think the world is too divided. Um, I think alcohol makes people do stupid things. Um, I'm not sure those two things should be mixing all the time. 
Um, but you know, I think straight people who are great allies do find themselves in gay bars all the time. Pulse was full of straight people. We had we had six victims that night who died that were straight. Um, so you know, it is a place where allies do come and are comfortable. But I'm not sure if the entire world is ready to be that integrated. I agree with you, and I think you know another thing that a lot of people kind of miss is just because you don't necessarily need something doesn't mean it doesn't serve a valid purpose. I mean, we don't need Italian restaurants in the world because there are buffet restaurants that serve Italian and hamburgers and Chinese and everything. So if we just need a bunch of, you know, kind of generic restaurants that serve any kind of food on the planet, we don't need any, we don't need a Chinese restaurant. We don't need an Italian restaurant, but it does allow you to immerse yourself more in that particular culture to experience more of that kind of environment. And I think from my perspective, anyway, I think one thing about the LGBTQ bars that is important is it allows people to explore the intricacies of their involvement in the community, where in that community do they fit? They might be able to go as two women, two men, or two trans people or whatever, and go into uh, Burger King and have a burger. But they are not going to find out which element, which which little genre of the gay community suits them best. And they're not going to experience it in its natural habitat by going out to, you know, a mall or a, a chain restaurant. So I think they're still very important. I agree with you 100%. So <clears throat> I cannot express enough how much I appreciate what you did for the uh, Orlando community in the creation of Pulse to begin with. I don't know that I've ever heard anything bad about the bar. I think everybody that ever went there thought it was a great place to go and had a great time. Uh, when the shooting occurred in 2016, it was amazing how many people immediately talked about being connected to that situation and had friends that went there or people they knew who had died or been injured. Um, it was an amazing bar. It reminded me of the bars that I used to go to in the late 70s and 80s where the bars were uh, considered to be a community center. They weren't just a place to drink. And that is very much the impression I got with Pulse, both when I visited and when I talked to other people about it. So thank you for creating Pulse. And even more so, thank you for doing what you're doing now to make sure that everybody remembers what happened and everybody is better prepared how to deal with these kind of things when they happen and for offering all the resources that you offer. So thank you very much, Barbara. Thank you so much for having me today, Art. Oh, you're quite welcome. That concludes another episode of the Gay Archive Show. For more information about this episode or to find more episodes, visit gaybarchives.com.